Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders, brought to you by Wavelength. Since 2008, Wavelength has taken over 2,000 leaders, physically and digitally, inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired, progressive and successful organisations, and hosted in-depth conversations with highly accomplished leaders from the world of business and beyond. We've run programmes in Silicon Valley, China, India, throughout Europe, going inside iconic organisations such as Apple, Alibaba, Airbnb, Netflix, Lego, and the remarkable Aravind Iker system in India. I'm Adrian Simpson, co-founder and chief connector of Wavelength, and in this episode, the focus is on insights into leadership. And joining me today is Fred Reed, one of the most interesting and accomplished leaders I've had the pleasure of meeting in a long time. Coming up in today's podcast. When I was a founding chief executive of Virgin America, my business card said Fred, one word, no title. I don't consider myself a great person or a fantastic leader. I consider myself a person with ethics and compassion. Care about people and they'll care about you. Yeah. More importantly, care about people and they'll care about the team. I have an accidental career. I have no business training, but I've learned you know, to, to, to value people who know more than me. And there's a lot of people yeah. who know more than me. Airline workers are quite unusual because it's the largest workforce in the world that I think operates completely unsupervised. I forbade the use of passenger or customer. No, they're guests. And that was a big deal and I corrected people constantly, even to the point where I would sometimes get up during a flight, get on the, the, the public announcement and say, a small correction, if I may, welcome and you know, welcome to our guests. And people love that. Make it simple, make it approachable. At Lufthansa and at Delta, I started a business literally, literacy course that wasn't a course at all. It was a board game. I would find nine dirty cups and, and, and 12 dirty plates, and I would wash them. And then I would take a picture of it and I'd send the picture to the entire company. I would get these so-called ACAS messages from pilots in the air. Fred, I'm at 36,000 feet over Milwaukee. It wasn't me and I can prove it because I'm right here. Formerly founding CEO of Virgin America, president and CEO of Delta Airlines, president of Lufthansa and president of Cora Aircraft Program, a division of Kitty Hawk. Today, Fred is a senior advisor to the founders of Surf Air Mobility. But Fred's accomplishments also extend beyond the industry. And between 2015 and 2018, he served as strategic advisor to Airbnb's co-founder and CEO, Brian Chesky. This led to Fred serving as global head of transportation for Airbnb, working in Brian's office of the CEO in 2019 and 2020. In recognition of his many achievements, Fred is featured in many leading business journals, including the Financial Times and the San Francisco Business Journal, named him Executive of the Year an accolade previously awarded likes of Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, and Larry Page and Sergey Brin of Google. As such, it's my deep honor today to welcome Fred to this Wavelength Making Waves podcast. So Fred, you've held some incredible uh, positions. I was just interested to kick off, really. Um, you know, um, what are the key, key moments as you look back on your career that really defined uh, how you led or how indeed you continue to lead? I would say one of them was I always enjoyed working with people yeah. and leading people. It's a different mm -hmm. discipline. They overlap in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say that I enjoyed listening to people. I enjoyed the challenge of trying to convince them to think a certain way or act in a certain way. I don't remember many moments where, okay, this is it, but I'll tell you one, my 
one of my first jobs was a very, very junior uh, position at, at, at a now defunct airline called Pan Am, uh, working in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And um, it turned out I was working for a guy who had no ethics and no morals. And wow. I was uh, one of the things I realized, I said, oh, I'm in my 20s, I don't know anything, I'm earning a paltry sum of money, and I'm, I'm a sales guy. And, and I discovered quite by accident that the guy I was working for was stealing from the company. And I'll never, remember, never forget saying, well, wait, you have a good salary, you can proudly tell your family and friends who you work for, and you have good benefits, why would you possibly want to steal? Uh, anyway, it led to a, a situation where I was able to disclose to important people that this was going on and the person was removed and I was promoted, which was the last thing on my mind. <laughs> but one of the things that I learned early was it's really a bad idea to be dishonest, yeah. really a terrible idea. And I was, you know, I, I, that was one thing that came to mind. The second thing is when that all occurred, all of a sudden I had this giant team of seven or eight people working for me, and I was the boss. And I remember feeling differently. They were peers before, and now they were direct reports. Um, and I felt responsible for them. I felt responsible for their fulfillment. I felt responsible for uh, them having a rewarding career. Those were two things that come to mind very, very early on. It's just for the for the for the listeners. Could you both well rewind to, to just your upbringing? Because you're not you were not raised uh, in in a North, indeed in North America. Because you just expand upon you've already made a couple of international references. So uh, for the listeners' benefit, where where were you actually raised? Well, I was uh, I was born in San Francisco to an American father and a German mother. She was a war bride. Uh, came over from Germany. My, my father was a foot soldier in Germany during World War II and met my uh, mother and fell hopelessly in love with her, which I can completely understand. She was an amazing person. Uh, and they moved to San Francisco. And um, this, the, in, in those days, uh, the emperor of Ethiopia asked the United States State Department to send them five good men to build the national airline. That's, that's, that's how it worked in those days. Uh, uh, and, uh, and my dad immediately put his hand up and said, Ethiopia, that's fantastic. I'm an outdoorsman and, 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 and let's do it. So my first memories, because I moved at yeah. the age of one from San Francisco to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and I stayed there just over a decade. Uh, so that had quite a bit of influence on me. Then I came back, went to high school and went to college, right. and then uh, felt this han hankering to go overseas again. And literally right after I graduated from, 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 from college at, at, at Berkeley, uh, moved to India for a trainee job. Moved from there to the Middle East, then to the UK, then to another place in the Middle East, then back to India in the airline business, then over to Paris, up to London again, down to Frankfurt, over to New York, back to Frankfurt, over to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, and and that took about a quarter of a century. Wow, wow! Because I mean, that, you know, that gives you, I mean, just that 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 global exposure is is unique, and I, you know, as a leader, I've led in so many different geographies, so many different cultures. But just before we go there, I mean, I'm just quite interested because you, you, you touched up a moment ago and you talked about, you know, you felt a sense of responsibility for these people. You, 
you mentioned there's a difference between working alongside people and leading people. What is your sort of, I guess, if you had to, to define leadership, what, what does leadership for you mean? My answer is a stolen answer. I will confess that up front. Uh, uh, from one of my best bosses in the world over these past decades, who said to me, <laughs> came to me and sat down at my on the other side of my desk, I wasn't at his desk, he was at my desk and said, leadership is basically, Fred, basically leadership is to get everybody to head generally west. That's the idea. Any questions? And I said, no, none. And uh, then what happens when they stray? And they go south or north. Oh, no, no, you have to get generally west. A little straying is okay, but generally west, generally progress. And uh, so that's my stolen line. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. But I also got a sense when you said earlier that you know you wanted people to, to you know, felt a sense of responsibility for them, that you, it's almost like you want them to fulfill their potential as well. It seems like more than just giving them direction, absolutely. But I also got a sense, I mean, I, I, we, we, before we were talking, we talked about Southwest Airlines uh, many times, and you know, business I've had the great pleasure of being around and having taken clients to and run podcasts with and so forth. And of course, Herb Gelher and Colleen Barrett famously talked about servant leadership, right? Is that an ethos that you, that you identify with, that whole idea of sort of being there for the people that you are leading? Deeply, yeah. deeply. I. I believed in servant leadership long before the term was coined, or at least before it was in common currency yeah. in people's vocabulary. It, I remember vividly saying, you are not here to make me look great. You're not here for that. You are here to succeed. You are here to be a member of the team. And I always say team rather than family, because in a team you have to perform. Mm. Uh, a lot of companies like to say we are a family mm. and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. I love the affection and the bond. But if you're in a family and crazy Uncle Eddie wants to eat, come for dinner at Thanksgiving, you have to have crazy, uh, you know, crazy Uncle Eddie. But with a team, there's a performance measure, a performance. And I used to talk to my team about this. I say we all play positions. We all play positions. We all have a contribution to make. If you sprain your ankle you get to go and rest on the bench until your ankle's better. We'll pay you and give you all your benefits, but you need to play. You need to contribute. And that's the essence of a team, is being a player and making a contribution. So, and I would spend a lot of time saying, if we all do this together, we will succeed collectively and we will be more happy in our collective success than me trying to be, uh, star somewhere fascinating i'm smiling as you're saying that because of course netflix famously talks about uses the analogy of a high performance team and they talk exactly that because their their culture deck is very open they have statements like adequate performance equals generous severance package which is a kind of netflix quotation which is you're on a team you're a star player but actually if you know you're not fulfilling your potential We'll move you on, you know, to somewhere else. Many years before Netflix even existed, you were you were you were you were leading in that that precise way. Fascinating, fascinating. I think also you talked about when we met in London the other week. You also talked about I think it was a maybe a Pan Am VP that you met with once, and you described it almost as a, a 
experience such deferential fear that this individual and, and you decide you didn't want to be that. Could you could you just sort of tell tell us that story again? I talked moments ago about encountering a, a corruption yes. in my early days. Fortunately, I learned that that was the exception and not the rule. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I remember, I remember I had no business training of any kind. And I had a Bachelor of Arts degree, which is great. You And, and I had a global perspective, but that didn't make me anything special. I had to earn from 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 there. So the other impression I had at the time was nobody really communicates what's actually happening. And I was off way in the, uh, you know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia wasn't the most central spot for a New York-based global airline, but that was my job and that's where I lived. And I was struck that everything was top-down, uh, uh, questions, suggestions were not encouraged and sometimes they were rather explicitly discouraged and you really had this impression that i had this impression that i remember the first time i laid my vice my eyes on a vice president and i thought wow i remember him well i won't disclose his name but he's a very nice man but that person was nice and worked hard and but never stopped by your desk never came to the shop floor uh, and j basically my overwhelming impression of senior officers at the time was those are the guys who walked into a room and closed the door and you're on the wrong side of that door and then you, you didn't know what was going on, what decisions are being made and if you actually got to decisions being made, you never knew the why. Yeah. And the why yeah. was why does a company do this? Yeah. Why am I being directed to do that? Yeah. And, and I always thought it would be kind of nice if yeah. I, I had no dreams of being an executive of any yeah. kind. Yeah. I was making, at this point, $14,000 a year. Uh, that's a step up. <laughs> <laughs> that's a step up. Uh, 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 but I remember very well saying, well, nobody really explains, besides the slogan, you know, stuff like, be great and serve the customer. But come on, there's got to be more. And I really, really wanted to understand how things worked. Yeah. So I was gonna, I mean, my question was going to be, that taught you what? I mean, the so what from that, but it sounds like already that, that, that experience of being around that kind of leadership almost showed you what you wanted was the opposite. You wanted to, yes. to, to, to be in the room when it happened, to quote Hamilton. You wanted to, to be able to explain the why. You wanted to be able to... To, to engage people, get their hearts and minds rather than just instruct them. Yeah, it sounds like it really informed it, you how made a, you went on to leave. It made a big impression on me, and, and especially because I started literally at the very bottom of the totem pole. And, and it, 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 it really made an impression on me. These weren't bad people, yeah. but it was command and control, and it was very, very top-down. And I remember thinking, I wish they would just explain things a little more. It only takes a couple of minutes. In fact, I'm not explaining more. Um, literally, 15 minutes ago, you were just telling me a story about um, in the context of service. And, and when you run an airline, you know that one of the uh, key things that, that drives customers away is a, is a perception of a bad experience. Um, and you were telling me a story about uh, writing to some of the, the air stewards. Could you Expand upon that story again for me, because I was really interested about the lengths that you went to to help people that are working in the front line of the airline understand the importance of treating the customer the right way and the customer's perception. I was working in Europe at the time at a very senior level. By that time, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the 
the, the identification out. But at that time, I was the president of a company. And um, we, uh, I, I was very focused upon what customer commendations and customer complaints. And every now and then, we would get really, really bitter complaints about alleged, and I use the word carefully, bad treatment by people on the front line. Yeah. So I thought, well, this person doesn't know what impression he or she made. So I started, I, I, I crafted responses, and I checked with legal, and I checked with human resources, but I would write letters, personalized letters, to employees at their homes, in their homes. They'd get it in their mailbox. This is before email was ubiquitous. And I would say, by the way, I just want to share this event with you. I'm not judging you. This is not a disciplinary thing or anything like that. But I would like to show you a reflection for the purposes of reflection. I'd like to show you what a very valuable customer thought of you. And I went on to say that the number one way to, to is, is bad human treatment that, that, that drives people away from carriers. And it's almost impossible to bring them back. So I wrote them a note saying, this is what happened. No harm, no foul, not judging you. But I wanted you to see this. Mm. And uh, it's OK. But it's just, otherwise, you would have never known about this. Mm. And it generated some really good responses from people. And it generated a few really bad ones. Uh, but it was a way for me to express consumer feedback directly back to somebody who's on the front line. Yeah and who, who receives paying guests yeah. every day of the yeah. week. And I think also when you wrote those letters, you just introduced yourself as Fred. Was that right as well? Very much yes. You, you would write to you say, hi, I'm Fred. This is, you know, and then you explain who you are, but you, you, you would kind of say you were just getting the tone nice and making it a conversational tone almost in the letters. Very so, much yeah. so, yeah. which was particularly hard in Germany because it's a more, in the business environment, it's, it's a very proper and formal culture yeah. uh, uh, and, and it's not common to use form, uh, uh, yeah. first names. It, it's become much more common yeah. in the meantime, but um, that was an early thing of mine with colleagues is said, you know, please call me Fred. Yeah. <laughs> I would really be more comfortable that way uh, and, and, and that worked out. Uh, you had, did, am I right in when I was reading, you even had business cards printed with just Fred on. Was that was that? Yes, was that right? when, when I was when I was a founding chief executive of Virgin America, which is great because I had been in the business for years, decades actually, and I knew exactly what I didn't want, and I had a okay idea of what I did want. But the big thing, when starting an airline from scratch, which is an unusual event, uh, uh, I knew what I didn't want, and that list was. 200 items long and the things that I did want was well it, 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 it should be this way so one thing I wanted to have was informality there's right. a lot of formality kind of a militaristic formality in airline announcements you know <laughs> this is your captain okay um, uh, do not congregate in the lavatory or sorry in the galley and I went to my whole team starting this airline, and I said, no, 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 no. You don't say lavatory. It's called a bathroom. You don't say galley. It's a kitchen. And you just drop all this, all this stuff. Make it simple. Make it approachable. Yeah. It doesn't diminish you. Yeah. It enhances you. Yeah. So uh, along those lines, my business card said, Fred, one word, no title, no address, no fax number, but just my Fred, and then 
um, an email address at the at the lower right hand corner, and um, and I and I didn't force anybody else to do this. I dared my team. I said, if you dare, do it. If you don't, I don't care. Put everything on it. Put your address. Put your birth sign. It's fine. But this is kind of simplistic minimalism. Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah. I love that, and I think you know when I you know, had the pleasure of last 30 years getting in the boardroom shop floors of some remarkable companies around the world. And one of the things I've observed is there's so much complexity in most businesses. And what great businesses often do is make it very simple and just strip out some of the bullshit. You know, and I, you know, I remember, you know, remember of Southwest again, being at Southwest Airlines many years ago, and they referred to the receptionist as the director of first impressions. Because they said, that's exactly what they are. That's fantastic. You know, exactly what they are. You know, you think, and I went to Umpqua Bank in Portland, Oregon. I remember there was a lady on reception there, and her name was a, 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 a Gigi, and it just said, Director of Smiles. That was her, that was her job, right, because she was on reception. It was, that, it was that kind of thing. And I, I remember a different example as well, which is fascinating to me, the psychology of language in business. There was a, it was W.L. Gorn Associates, a company behind Gore-Tex, and they did something where they, the, there was some horrifically complicated process for claiming your expenses and expenses were out of control, and they changed the language to investment report. Lovely. <laughs> and, and, they, and it dropped by about 20% because they said, is this trip an investment? And if it is an investment, should you fly business or should you fly economy? And you know, do you think so? And just this changing the language in a context of business changes behaviors. You know, it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. You know, if I'm director of first impression, if I'm director of smiles, if I'm doing an investment report, not an expense report, I, I behave differently. It yeah. always fascinates me as to why most mainstream businesses don't just understand, just cut the crap and start to it use. It really is. Yeah. It, it's so simple. I mean, to elaborate ever so slightly, I, I forbade, I mean, quite strictly, I might add, the use of passenger or customer. No, they're guests. Okay, if, if you want to say you stole that from a hotel company, sure, yeah. I don't mind. Yeah. But there's no airline in the world at the time that used the word guest you are our guest and that was a big deal and I corrected people constantly even to the point where I would sometimes get up during a flight get on the the, the public announcement and say a small correction if I may welcome and you know welcome to our guests and people loved that I mean when I say people loved it the guests loved it but the employees loved it even more because it was it changes your mindset and I forbade the use of the word labor. That's common in, in, in service businesses. Well, that's the labor equivalent. They're not labor. A, an airline pilot, an airline flight attendant, a check-in agent, these are highly qualified people. Yeah. They understand complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so teammate. Yeah. Again, I'm probably yeah. not the first in the world to have invented that, but we stuck to that script, and it sounds corny, but never use the word labor, never use the yeah. word employee, team member power or teammate. Power language. Uh, you, you're reminding me as well, uh, one of my favorite businesses I had the pleasure to, to study and visit many times is Ritz-Carlton, and you may know this. They, they, their credo is, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I love that. They're, are, I'm a great it, admirer yeah, of that company. I think it's exquisite, right? Which is in an industry which could be seen as, you know, service can be seen as subservient, or people think it's subservient. Right, to, to right. serve somebody else. And you think in a context of a luxury hotel where an employee might be earning a month or in two or three months what a guest could spend a night on a room and a, and a, and a, and a good meal. You know, how do you help that individual feel 
on par with the guest, uh, you know, and ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. But it really, really goes to that, that, that clever, I love that, that use of language. I, I just wanted to another question, which was, you know, in the, in the articles um, I read about you in the San Francisco uh, business uh, piece in the Financial Times, um, many of your former colleagues um, r refer to your, your people skills, people skills, they are numerous times. Um, could you could you expand upon these? And I think you know, in, in this context, I, I get a sense you love the fact you're grabbing the microphone, right? That just for me <laughs> is the epitome. You sounds like you're a leader that is was very happy to roll your sleeves up. And I just would love about your reflections on you know you think when others say Fred has great people skills, what do they mean by that? Well, this is the part that makes me shy again. I I I don't consider myself a great person or a fantastic leader. I consider myself a person with ethics and compassion and you know the do unto others and and I remember vividly in my early years being quite junior very top down don't ask questions just do your job I remember the difference I felt when somebody would just pause and explain something to me or ask me like how you how's it going today and I took that with me um, uh, I was blessed with a good childhood and, 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 and loving parents and, 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 and good, mostly good teachers, not all, in, in, in school. So I would just say I took that with me and said, you know, all things being equal, people prefer to be treated with respect. Yeah. And I didn't do that, oh, well, because I have a manual that says, you know, page 41 says treat people with respect. Just, just it, to me, it's common sense. Uh, I'm deeply interested in how people feel. I don't always have to agree with them. I would spend a lot of time in my more senior executive roles explaining decisions. And if they, I got pushback, I would explain it again and in a slightly different way. And then finally, on the third person, I'd say, I've done my best, I've explained it to you, and I think the rationale is correct. If I'm wrong, I'm gonna come right back to you and confess my mistake, but I think this is the best way to go for our team, yeah. for our company. Yeah. So I didn't go, I didn't learn this in school, and I didn't have a mentor per se. I just felt right. Mm. It felt right. Mm. Care about people and they'll care about you. Mm. More importantly, care about people and they'll care about the team. Mm. I'll give you a simple example. Mm. It took me some while to realize this, but airline workers are quite unusual because it's the largest workforce in the world that I think operates completely unsupervised. Completely unsupervised. If you're on a, if you're making automobiles, or you're working in a restaurant, or you are writing software code, or you're a banker, uh, uh, your output can be measured quite significantly. Mm. You, you can be yeah. measured yeah. by the minute, in yeah. which is what's yeah. done. You know, Absolutely, metric, metric, metric. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Amazon is a good example. For better or for worse, they, you know, people can measure output. In the airline business, if you think about it, a flight attendant never sees his or her boss, except maybe twice or three times a year. It's usually a perfunctory interview. Otherwise, they're on a team. Or let's take this example. It's pouring rain, it's the middle of winter, it, you're in one of New York's airports and you're a licensed mechanic and you've got to crawl into a belly, into a hard space, and you've got to fix something. You're a licensed, a federally licensed employee. I can't tell you whether you should have done it in 15 minutes or in three hours. I can't tell you that. You're unsupervised. 
So this goes on whether you're a check-in agent or a flight attendant or a pilot, you're unsupervised. So what defines good work? Mm. What defines good work is a belief system mm. that the company mm. is a good place to work, mm. that your leadership cares about mm. you, but it's very, very different. Mm. So if you have people who are unsupervised and nobody in the world can go to a licensed mechanic mm. and say, you should have done this in 20 minutes, mm. You can't do that. No. That's wrong. Yeah. It's ethically wrong. It's yeah. probably legally wrong. But you try to build a culture where people trust you yes. and people think you're doing the best thing. And if you're screwing it up, you're going to have your door open and you're going to listen when they come and tell you you're screwing it up. I love that. I love that. I think it's, it's great. I think you know the, the fact that you... I, 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 what I'm picking up on is the importance of alignment as well really which is alignment 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 which you're talking about you know you're getting you're trying to get people on the same page you're telling them three times this is the direction and ultimately you're going you know i'm making a call now right i'm making a call but yeah. you're going to great lengths to yeah. explain the rationale and get alignment and i think alignment you know i see you know i spend a lot of time in my, in my client companies i speak spectacular misalignment actually because i have a sort of belief in in, in life and businesses that people will behave in a way in which they're measured, recognized, and rewarded. Why, why would you not, right? And, and so, you know, getting that alignment, making sure that people are, you know, you're recognizing the right behaviors, they're using the right language you mentioned to earlier, incredibly important, incredibly important. You, you just, I just want to go back to the role, the sleeves up thing as well, because obviously you were, you were, you know, founding CEO of Virgin uh, Americas, not just, um, you know, the, the CEO of it. Um, is that is that whole idea that grabbing going back to get on the plane? You're picking up on something. The language isn't quite right. You're grabbing the microphone. You're making you're almost taking to make an announcement yourself. How important do you think it is for for leaders to to basically just when required roll up your sleeves, you know, and do the job. Uh, you know, put yourself alongside the the, the 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 flight attendants, the frontline people. How important do you think that is for a leader? I think it's essential. Yeah. I think it's essential. You 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 can be a great executive, leave mm. the word leader out. You can be a great executive. You can do all your homework, read everything, pay attention to the shareholders, pay attention to the employees, uh, pay attention uh, to, 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 to the community. You can do all those things. Yes. But there's a difference between doing that yeah. and being completely approachable. Yeah. And one thing that actually happened, we didn't have enough money to have cleaners. Uh, well, we had the carpets vacuumed at Virgin America, but we did our own dishes. Wow. And there was nobody to do the dishes. And we had an honor system, wash your dishes. So I would literally frequently uh, find myself at 11 p.m. in the office, sometimes later, which is way past my bedtime, and I would go to, 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 to put mineral water back in the fridge or something like that, and I would find nine dirty cups and, and, and 12 dirty plates, and I would wash them. And then I would take a picture of it and I'd send the picture to the entire company, everybody in the entire company, uh, when it was 200 people and when it was 2,000 people. And I'd say, hi, it's Fred here. I washed your dishes tonight. What you're telling me by putting a dirty dish in here is that you are more important than anybody else in the company because we've all agreed we're gonna wash our own dishes and sometimes we're gonna wash our friends' dishes. So tonight I washed all of your dishes Please participate. This is a true story. And I, I would get 
these so-called ACAST messages from pilots in the air. Fred, I'm at 36,000 feet over Milwaukee. It wasn't me, and I can prove it because I'm right here. And I said, okay, you're forgiven. And I said, I'm not hunting for a culp. I'm not hunting for a culprit. I'm saying, if I can do your dishes, you can do mine every now and then. Yeah. That's a real really. example. Absolutely. That is a lovely story. And I, I think that and the power of those stories, stories are so powerful. They set cultures, don't they? I was, I was with uh, a, a fascinating guy the other day um, who was um, yeah, ex-Netflix, ex- he's now at Disney, and he was with um, Amazon. And he was telling me a story about, at Amazon, one of their values is frugality, right? And everything has to be double-sided, printed, and everything has to be black and white. And when he started at Amazon, he made a rookie error and he printed something in, in color. And his boss stopped him in the corridor and just said, because in, in the Amazon culture, every, for the first 15 minutes, every meeting is given over to the discussion of this document that you've prepared. And his boss stopped him and said, you cannot walk in that room with that color document. You will be torn to shreds. Right. Not only strength of the arguments, weakness, because you've used color. Yeah. Go back and put it in black and white. And it was just like, <laughs> wow. But he said, you know, that was that was the way things were done around. And, and you know, when you extrapolate that to a million employees, right, all printing on double-sided, all printing in in, in, in black and white, the, yeah. the financial implication is huge, right? But the but the message was there, right? Alignment again, right? You know, frugality. And you there's your story about, you know, we're a team, you know, look after each other, you wash your dishes metaphorically and literally. You know, I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I just think that is a, you know, yeah, there's probably stories, pilots still tell those stories today about the day Fred sent an email about, about the uh, dishes not being done. It's, uh, I, I want to pick up on, again, when I was reading the articles about you, um, that there were some wonderful stories about, um, I can't really use any other language apart from charm, when you sort of, you, you're getting others to buy in what you wanted them to do. And uh, I think there was a, story around a, uh, an aeroplane you wanted to be, to, to be made, because you just expand upon, you know, as a, as a leader, you know, what, what the arsenal of things you have to pull upon sometimes. And I think this maybe gets back to this whole thing about simplicity and just making it real, you know, but yeah. just, just expand upon it for the listeners. Well, I was sitting in that rocking chair out on the porch, staring at the, at the forest one day, and I said, well, we're going to name all of our planes. Uh, Okay, big deal. That's been done for years. But I said, we're going to do it differently. We're going to do a website, a global website called Name That Plane. And we're going to put it out to the world virally. And we're going to invite people to name our plane. So it's not just going to be what I think or what my vice president of operation thinks. We did a global contest. And we got some great, great names from people in India, in Zimbabwe, and whatever. I would write them a personal thank you note. I would send them an aircraft model, which cost over $100, and then we would, put, we would then paint the plane with their name and yeah. say, here's your baby. There was one exception. I got to name the first plane, and I decided to name it Jefferson Airplane. Now, if you're very young, you're not going to know what this means, but Jefferson Airplane was a San Francisco rock band, which for a period in the 1960s was number one band on the planet. And I thought, how cool. Airlines in San Francisco, Jefferson Airplane was very famous, and it's got the World Airplane in it. So I started digging around trying to find them, and I finally landed after months of effort at, 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 in the home of the famous lead singer, Grace Slick. And she's smoking cigarettes and looking at me, and, and I'm saying, well, it's like this, you know, like Jefferson Airplane. How great. 
you know, it's it's going to be amazing. And she was she was nice. She was polite, but she said no. Actually, she did. She was very nice, but she said, "What is in this for me?" She said that, and she wouldn't be ashamed if I told her that if she read this or or listened to this. And I said, "Oh my God!" This at this point, I was saying, "Well, well I'll give you a hundred first class tickets, but leave that aside." Grace, this is not about you. This is about me. I was literally dancing 12 inches from your kneecaps at Fillmore Auditorium on these dates in 1969. I'm a fan. You owe me one. And she looked at me, and then she looked at my son, my adult son, who was sitting over there, and she said, I'm in. And she came up, it's on YouTube, she came up and made a speech at San Francisco about the naming of the aircraft. And then she said this, Fred's other choice was the Grateful Dead. That wouldn't look good on a plane. <laughs> I love that. I so, love that. I love that. I so, love I mean, I, 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 I've got to tell you, I didn't have that rehearsed. I just, uh, I had to turn the tables. I yeah. had to say, it's not about you. It's yeah. about me. Yeah. You owe me. Yeah. And, you know, she was wonderful. Yeah. You know, the thing I'm picking up on as you're speaking, Fred, is you're you know, an incredibly engaging communicator. You also have amazing ed- energy, right? Because you, you're very animated. Somebody once described another facet of, of leadership as being a chief encouragement officer. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, almost flipping, actually, you know, you're a CEO, you're a chief encouragement officer. That's actually what's meant by that. Do you think that's also a true reflection on your style, your, your, your sense of enthusiasm, your passion, your energy? Do you think that's played a big role in how you lead as well? I do. And again, I, I, I'll say what I said at the beginning. I have an accidental career. I have no business training. I'm not financially qualified, but I've learned, you know, to, to, to value people who know more than me. And there's a lot of people who know more than me. In fact, practically everybody knows something that you don't. So, um, I, 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 I guess (laughs) guilty as charged. I'm a pretty enthusiastic person. Uh, I've enjoyed love in my life, and I've enjoyed rewards, and 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 I deeply, deeply care about the people I work with, mm. and I don't, I don't put posters on the wall. I'm hostile to posters on the wall. I'm just, I want to be a good listener. I want to be engaging. I want to explain to people why things are being done, and uh, and and. I would literally stand up and say, I'm, how can I make you successful? How can I help you to succeed? What do you need? And then when they told me what they need, I would then tell them whether it was affordable or not. Yeah. And, uh, and it usually was, or some version thereof. And in that regard, I was really, really super into business literacy. Uh, a lot of the people I worked at very senior levels assumed that the frontline people don't understand complexity. Well, you know, they, some of them didn't even go to college. And I said, well, okay, okay. I know you have a graduate degree. I know you're hyper smart. But by the way, let me just say this. They have relationships. They have marriages, successful and failed. They have a mortgage to pay. They have a budget to manage. They have children to raise. They, are, they understand complexity as much as you do. Just they don't have all the right terms. So I started, it, it took me a, a couple of years to set up, but at Lufthansa and at Delta, I started a business literally, literacy course that wasn't a course at all. It was a board game. 
I hired people from the outside, I gave them real numbers, and they designed a board game, and then it was voluntary. I went to the whole team at, at Lufthansa and the whole team at Delta and said, if you want to learn about how this company really works, you are invited to come here and spend a day, eight people to a table, eight tables, 64 people, and there's going to be flight attendants and pilots and mechanics and revenue accountants and everybody, and you're going to play a board game based on real numbers, and at the end of the day, you're going to elect your president. Brilliant. And uh, first of all, there was this like, I don't know. And I said, it's, you're getting paid. Yeah. You're going to learn a thing or two. I used real numbers. And we would say, revenue in, you know, this, here's all the revenue in and here's all the, here's all the expense out. What would you do? Would you buy six new planes? Would you top up the pension? Would you give people a 3% raise, a 1% raise, a 9% raise? What would you do? And they had to play this game yeah. and make decisions. At the end of the day, when, when we said, who wants to be president? And I, this is on an ancient video on CNN. Everybody pointed at everybody else. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be president. And what people would come to me and say uh, is, it's, you have a shitty job. You've got no room to maneuver. Yeah. Yeah. You've really got a shitty job. And go, no, no, it's not shitty. But it's it is complex, hard. But it's complex. It's complex. And then, yeah. and then, you know, months later, I'd be getting off a plane and the flight attendant would say, it's all about the cash flow, Fred. And I go, thank you. And so by the way, I went to every one of those classes. Did you really? Yeah. Fantastic. Every one. Brilliantly powerful. That's it, isn't it? You've got to help people understand how the business works yeah. right and it, it, you know it, it reminds me i mean it nowhere near as complex but it was one of my favorite stories i went years ago to pixar and uh, a producer was working with i know his christian name is brad i can't remember his surname now and he's one of the creators of the simpsons and they acquired his business for, for telephone numbers and this producer said to me the she only way she could get him to make financially literate decisions was she created a board on the wall, and on the board it had like 100 straws, and each straw represented like 10,000 bucks, right? And then it had columns, hair, eyes, face, body, <laughs> right? Because he would literally be a creative, right? So, I want better hair, right? And she'd be going, well, which straw are you gonna move from the icon? Which, you've got five columns, Brad, and you know, where it, move the straw, Brad, because there ain't any more straws. Yeah. Right, right, the budget for the film is this. There are, it's to think that the whole budget is breaking down to straws. Yeah. You move the straw from where it is now yeah. to where you want it be, yeah. and I'll give you better eyes, right? Yeah. But if we don't move a straw, there's no better eyes, right? And she said, I he used love to go that. crazy. But he couldn't understand it until he made it so literal for him that he had to move the straw, and then he made the decision as to whether he was going to have better eyes or keep, you know, the, 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 just you know, I love that. It's a, it's a related world story, right? Which is people don't understand the complexity of the business till you, till you make it, till you make it, you make it uh, real for them. Uh, well, you know, it, it it sounds so obvious, but by the way, it was a big investment. Yeah. It cost a lot of money and a lot of time, but the output was amazing. People really paid attention yeah. and they go, I had no idea yeah. that the interest cost on our debt yeah. was this high. Yeah. Well, it is. You mentioned earlier that you've, um, you've learned from some other leaders. Um, I think in introduction, I mentioned you have worked with some incredible leaders whose names, you know, from you, you, I know you, you knew Herb Keller, the late great Herb Keller personally, you know, Gary Kelly, the, 
Yeah, he took over from 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 uh, Herb as a CEO of Southwest Airlines. Obviously, you've encountered Richard Branson in the Virgin days. You know, you've worked alongside Brian Chesky at, uh, at Airbnb. You've worked alongside. You've done some work for, for Larry Page's uh, company. Um, what have you observed? What have you learned from some of those leaders? Any stories? Any observations? Well, gosh, that's a hard one. They're all very different. Uh, um, they're all very, very different, and they've all come to their success in, 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 in different mm. ways. I would even go farther, you know, beyond that. Uh, way back when I joined uh, Lufthansa uh, as a VP, I ultimately rose to president, but there were took seven years or five years or something like that. And the uh, CEO and chairman of the Lufthansa Group, yeah. which is a handful of companies, uh, was... Uh, uh, was an engineer, and he started right after World War II by riding his bicycle to work, wow. and uh, and then he became CEO of this company. And what always struck me, he's always available, always uh, uh, approachable, available, willing to take the time. But when you, all that's there, I've heard you now for an hour, Fred, and this is my viewpoint. And you know, he would he would not be afraid to lead and overrule, but he was available. And I, if I walked out with the opposite decision of what I wanted, at least I understood why. Yeah. Uh, Richard is a very warm human being. He treated me fantastically, very hands-off. Uh, I appear in a number of his books, and he actually accurately said, well, Fred named the airline, it just was a project name, without even referring to me. It got called Virgin American. I, did, I forgot to tell Richard what I was gonna name his airline. Uh, but he was cool about it. Uh, he was always ready to help. Uh, Brian Chesky, very hands-on, very deeply involved. I mean, it's such a unique brand. But I'll say that Brian is very active, very even intrusive, but he's not a micromanager. There's a big difference. Mm. He, he's, he, he is the brand, the brand is him. Uh, so he was very, very deeply involved. Larry Page, Deeply curious person, really interested in the technology and the science, uh, and you know, f compared to Google, we were a hobby of his. But he would come and spend hours listening to us and asking pointed questions, uh, and offering very little specific guidance. But when you left that meeting, you knew what to do. He conveyed it in a, I don't know, an almost mystical way. With so the, all yeah, of these people. Yeah were different, very, very different. Yeah. Uh, uh, and all in their own ways, to me, inspiring and wonderful. I'm interested just about, about sort of maybe, so I don't know, say that the, the darker side of leadership is, 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 the, is the wrong expression for it, but you know, it's not easy, right? And, and I was interested in maybe a couple of things. One was, you know, if you look back, you know, what have been some of your greatest struggles as a leader? Um, and, and, and secondly, perhaps, you know, what's the greatest mistake or mistakes you've, you've made as a leader and what have you learned from them? Well, I think if I look back and, and try to be self-critical, um, in I've largely corrected this, but for a good while there in my younger years, uh, impatience, massive impatience, and uh, uh, temperamental outbursts occurred more than I'd like. Not, I'm not known as an angry person. Not, not then and not now, but there were times when I would get really impatient and I would treat people harshly. Uh, and 
I would conflate, okay, here's a business problem. It's not being solved. It's getting worse. And here's a human being who, if they were the cause of it, I would have let them go a long time ago, but they're just sitting there and I'm angry about something. So I take it out on a person in, in the room. This has happened to a lot of people, I'm sure. But it, if I look back and say, what would you correct? I'd like to say more patience, better listening, and don't lose your temper. It took me, I mean, it, I realized very on that this old famous adage like, we work hard and we play hard, is just nonsense. High performance jobs are athletic events. They are athletic events. You have to be fit. You have to be physical fit. You have to, it doesn't mean you have to run triathlons, but you have to be physically fit. You have to be mentally fit. You have to get enough sleep. Sleep is absolutely, if you ask me one thing, I'd say, Get enough sleep and everything else will sort itself out. But I had years and years where, you know, you'd work very hard weeks at a time and then you'd go out late and you wouldn't get enough sleep and you drank too much and you came to the office in a foul mood. Fortunately, those, those behaviors are in my very, very distant past, but they were things I look back on and say, that wasn't right. Be a better listener. Be more patient. I suppose my, my, my sort of penultimate questions. I was interested about um, your view on recruiting. That was one, one aspect, which is a lot of businesses, a lot of great businesses that I admire, like the Southwest Airlines did as well, the Ritz Carlton's, the Four Seasons, talk about um, recruit for attitude, train for skill. You know, and I was interested about your experience. Like, you know, when you are recruiting as a leader, what were you looking for in people, and and, and how did you go about trying to identify in them? I would, even before it was fashionable, I would overwhelmingly focus on attitudes and values. Hmm. Overwhelmingly. Hmm. And there were times when I might take a candidate who's a little less capable in the technical skills, but exuded the desire to learn, exuded values, exuded... Uh, uh, a positive attitude, I would take them first and foremost. Uh, and I mean, I've, I've had pretty senior people work for me who did all the stuff on the KPIs. Yeah, we well, are gonna do this and we met the budget, we did it on time, da 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 da. But in, the, in so doing, they were angry or mean or, or, or dis, disrespectful to peers and subordinates and sometimes their own superiors. And I decided early that that's not good. And, and, and I've had to let some superstars go who were really good at the execution, but the execution of a business objective sometimes involved execution of people. <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 that's just not gonna, really? it's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. It can't, it, if you have the right morals and value system, and you're a reasonably satisfied person who knows how to give and receive yeah. love and respect, yeah. that's gonna cut it. Yeah. And I mean, look at, look, at legend, I, I believe that Brian Chesky will be one of the great CEOs mm. of this century. Mm. I'm not the first person who said that. That's probably been written a hundred times. He's a designer. Mm. And, 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 and yet, he is so much more than that. And in my own case, I have a degree in Indian civilization, and that really didn't help in a lot of job interviews. Like, we want you to be the chief operating officer and you have 75,000 people working for you, and 
you studied Indian civilization? And I go like, uh, yes, I did. I can't hide it. <laughs> and then I always had some, my wise ass answer was, if you can master Indian civilization, you can master anything. <laughs> <laughs> so true, I suspect as well. But I just love that. I think when you're talking there about, you know, taking people ultimately for the attitude, you know, but, but and, 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 you know, letting go of people actually who deliver on the KPIs, but don't have the attitude. I mean, we've mentioned Netflix a couple of times today, but, you know, they talk about no brilliant jerks, right? You know, no, <laughs> that's their expression, right? No brilliant jerks, right? You know? I haven't heard that. Yeah, and that's, you know, so what you're describing there is, is, you know, I think you're just way ahead of your time. Just, just thank you. I think your, um, yeah, your, your enthusiasm and your passion is really infectious. It, re it really is. I'll press stop in, in, in a second, but I mean, any final, anything I haven't covered off? No. If people ask me, you know, like, what's the one word you think of every day, whether you like to it or not, and whether you slept well or not, what is the one word? It's gratitude. I'm grateful. I'm very grateful for the opportunities that have been afforded to me, uh, the chances I've been given, and there are a lot of people who took a flyer on me. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my family, for the brilliant and warm people I've worked with. Brilliant. Well, with that, Fred, Thank you so much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to, to uh, have this conversation with you today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's Making Ways podcast, the podcast for curious business leaders with the fantastic Fred Reed. If you enjoyed it, please check out our other Making Ways podcast with the likes of Elizabeth Bryant, the Senior Vice President of People at Southwest Airlines, who will take you inside their legendary culture of service excellence, or David Graham, the former head of LEGO Future Group, set up to invent the future of play, who will take you inside their step change innovation processes and tell the story of how LEGO innovated to remain relevant. So thank you for tuning in today. All our podcasts are available on the usual platforms, so please tune in and stay curious.